The harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Why did he use that word? God goes to extreme measures to bring the lost to himself. The greatest gift you will ever give this world is your intimacy with God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three inside of me. I've got the power right now. I think what Jesus really wants is people to go. I want to be the answer to Jesus' prayer request. Welcome to the Fuel for the Harvest podcast. When this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, then shall the end come. Hey guys, and welcome to another Fuel for the Harvest podcast. This is Charlie. And this is Nathan. This is part two of our look at the Christian worldview. The pattern that you'll see uh, in the episodes to come will be that we kind of lay out the worldview to, to the best of our ability, and then we're going to evaluate the worldview um, for consistency and coherence. Is it consistent within itself? And is it coherent with the rest of the world around us? Does it match factual reality? So let's, let's just, let's attack that first question. Is it consistent in and of itself? So there are various things and we want to address some of the hard to address issues so that we're not uh, taking any worldview and, and being unjust or unfair. So is Christianity consistent to itself? Uh, the typical things that people will say are inconsistent are things like, uh, let's start with this, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the books of the Bible. They seem to contradict each other. You Christians claim that it's all one story. Why did they write all different things? That seems inconsistent to me. And how could it be true if it's all different? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I hear it a lot. Another question that we hear a lot is, um, doesn't it seem to you that the God of the Old Testament is like way different than the God of the New Testament, that like the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is different than the person of Jesus. So those are the... And typically, yeah, we we hear that a ton. Typically what people will point at is, well, he seems just wrathful and full of justice and wants to kill a bunch of innocent people in the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, he's only a God of love and mercy and just wants to love on you. And that's something that people will point out to say, isn't that inconsistent how do you deal with that so the the gospels uh the the the, i think the easiest most straightforward answer to it is simply this four different guys with four different perspectives i would say that we need to disconnect if we're going to honestly evaluate this we need to disconnect john from the other three gospels Uh, we call matthew mark and luke the synoptic gospels and then John is is a little bit different. It's uh, it's it's more of a theological treatise than it is a synoptic gospel. Anyway, the synoptic gospels, three different perspectives on all of the same events, and many times uh, something that people accuse of being inconsistent can be easily explained by someone's by by saying one author decided to highlight this particular issue, whereas another author decided to highlight this particular issue. Uh, Charlie, do you have any examples that come to the top of your head? And I, I can think of one example off the top of my head. In Mark chapter 10, uh, it talks about the blind man Bartimaeus calling out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, and then Jesus healing him. But in Matthew chapter 20, it says there were two blind men. And we know chronologically, this is the same story. It's right before Jesus's triumphal entry. It's right before he's coming into Jerusalem. So it's the same story. It's the same 
placement. It's not different blind men stories. So why would Matthew say there's two and Mark say there's one? Obviously this contradicts. There's not one and two. That's not possible. So, so that, that's one example of how the gospels could seem to contradict each other or be inconsistent. Right. And other people will mention like what different people call different places, but I don't know if you guys have ever uh, traveled around, um, but people do call different places, different things. Um, depending on their culture. Uh, like we, we work with a, a, tri- a tribal group called the Hods Bay and just the, the next tribe over called the Datoga has different names for the same places. And so it's, it's easy to see, especially in an ancient context, why, like, why one person would call it the Sea of Galilee and one person would call it the Lake of Gennesaret. Like it, it's easily, easily, easily explained. Yeah. And whereas you find uh, stories like the blind men, it could be that, well, Mark was just really focused on the one guy he saw. And Matthew happened to notice that there were actually two. It doesn't mean that it's false information. It's just that that particular person who wrote that gospel was focused on that detail versus the other detail. Another compelling argument that I've heard with regard to like the inconsistencies in the gospels is if they had all been exactly the same, we would have accused them of copying each other. <laughs> like the, the fact that they're slightly different proves that they're not just carbon copies of each other, that, that they're, they're side-by-side testimonies instead of carbon copies. Yeah. And if you also look at culturally, in that time, their purpose was not to create a scientific, exact, detailed document to say, let me tell you that this guy was 35 years old, he had blonde hair, brown skin, and he was blind, and that's the guy. They weren't creating a, a, a scientific document. They were saying, hey, let me tell you what Jesus did and who he is. So their whole purpose was to reveal the person of Jesus in these gospels and point to what he did and the works that he did and what he taught. And uh, so even in their purpose, they're not claiming to say, I have all the perfect details. Good. And uh, let's evaluate that Old Testament uh, reality. So why is the God of the Old Testament seemingly so insanely wrathful while the God of the New Testament, primarily Jesus, like, why is he so loving? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, it's a common question that's brought up. And I, as I've thought about it, I think there's two ways to answer that. The number one is, well, first I'll say, I don't believe they're different. Now there's two ways to go about how you answer that. Number one is Jesus was just as wrathful as the God of the Old Testament. Now that's a hard statement to swallow a little bit. Now let me explain that. Uh, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. People say, well, Jesus was love and he, he just wanted this for you. He just wanted you to have a good life and that's about it. Actually, he's the one that brought up hell more than anybody. So we might take him seriously. He was very intense in these things. And we also see toward the end of the Old Testament, he's the one coming back with a sword and bringing justice and taking out those who are evildoers. So we do see this God of wrath and vengeance from... I think you meant to say the end of the New Testament. Sorry. Yes, the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Yes. Good point. Thanks for catching that. Um, Now... At the same time, I'll say the God of love that you see in the New Testament is the same God of love that you see in the Old Testament. (laughs) So what, how could that be? Well, uh, 
we see that God so loved the whole world in the New Testament. He desires the lost of everyone to know who he is for his name to be proclaimed in all the earth. And he also desires to, to preserve that message and protect his people. And so you see in the Old Testament, God claims, he says, I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love and mercy to thousands of generations while punishing the sins of fathers to the third and fourth generation. He says, my mercy triumphs judgment. My love is far greater. That does not mean God does not have wrath, though. He desires to be loving and merciful, but he is a holy God, and therefore there is wrath against sin. Now, here's a specific example. People will say things like, well, why would this God of love then, why, why would he have them kill the first sons in Egypt in the 10 plagues? Why wouldn't he have just killed Pharaoh? and let them go. Pharaoh was the guilty one. Weren't the sons, weren't they like innocent, so to speak? And um, there's always going to be questions like that. Now I will say context is key. Context is very important to dig into specifically what was happening. And as you read through those plagues, now you could come up with different answers for every time this happens throughout the Bible. But as you look at this specific example, you'll see that as you're reading these plagues, the whole purpose was that God revealed his name and person to all the people there. God, I, I actually believe God wanted all of Egypt to know who he was. You see throughout the entire Old Testament that God said, hey, Israel, you're my chosen people to be a light to the nations. If, if others will come in and follow my plan of salvation and worship and sacrifice at my house of prayer, then they can join you and follow you. So God actually wanted others to join them and to know who he was and to be in relationship with him. Now, that being said, the, the sons in Egypt, the Pharaoh's son and others, I believe that God knew if they were not all destroyed, those sons would grow up and try to stop the Israelites. And the Israelites were the ones in whom God had deposited his message and the one who was coming, the Messiah, to save the whole world. If God did not stop them, then they could have grown up to destroy the Israelites and come against them. This actually happened at another point in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Uh, God told the Israelites to destroy all the people of Canaan, and they disobeyed. They decided, nah, we're not going to destroy all the people. And then later on, all those Canaanites grew up and came back to destroy the Israelites and fight against them and what God wanted to do. So there are different things that you can look at contextually. There are ways of viewing it that I think are really important. But overall, I believe we do see the same God from beginning to end consistently. Yeah, I actually think that one of the reasons that we, uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that we hear this question so much is because Americans and other Western Christians and really people all around the world, um, we like to take the parts of God that we like and keep them and then kind of toss the other parts of God. Um, and in the process, what we've done is we've created a false idol. We've said, this is who God is. And then he's actually not that because this, this false picture that we have is just part of who he is. And in essence, when we worship this partial God, when we worship this God who only loves and never has justice, when we worship this God who only saves and never sends people to hell, like what we're doing is we're worshiping a God who is not the God of the Bible. If you read the Bible, it's very clear who God is. There is a hell. People will go there. There is wrath. There is judgment. There is all of those things his mercy and his love outweigh those things and are, are 
like even he says himself that judgment triumphs or mercy triumphs over judgment. But like a, we, what we have to do is we have to dismantle our false image of who God is and replace it with the biblical, the it biblical may, it, God. It may outweigh those things, but it doesn't negate those things. Correct. Exactly. And, and that's, and that's the essential core thing going on here. Also, um, the, the, the explanation that, that, that Charlie offered up, one of the things that I've, that I've discovered as I've had lots of conversations is that some people find these kinds of explanations compelling and some people don't find these kinds of explanations compelling. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not a really legitimate thing, a, a really legitimate answer, simply that some people find it compelling and some people don't find it compelling. If you're one of those people who don't find it compelling, feel free to email us at fuelfortheharvest.com and we would love to go deeper in that conversation with you. Yep. And, and our direct email is found there on the website. You can also do fuelfortheharvest.gmail.com if you just want to throw it in your phone or whatever real quick and send us a note. Um, there, there are lots of issues like this contextually, place after place, where context is really important to understand what's going on. And we'd love to discuss that with you, answer your hard questions, because there's, there's tons of them. Uh, a, a, another one that you wouldn't readily know with the plagues of Egypt is God was revealing himself to Egypt because all those plagues are very specific to the Egyptian gods. That's an important piece to understand that we wouldn't know from just reading it based on the context that God was saying, actually, your gods are false. They're not real. Let me prove it by bringing all these plagues on you and your gods aren't going to do anything to fix that. Mm. And therefore God is saying, Yahweh's the true God. Your gods won't do anything for you. And in fact, you'll see in those plagues that at some points, God actually gave them a way out and they were protected. It said those servants who actually cared, they were protected from the plague. Uh, and so I actually believe God did care about those people, but it's these kinds of contextual things that we can sometimes take things out of context that will lead to the inconsistencies, or it's just a difficult topic, or it's just, yeah, that's who God is. We've made him to be an idol. And that's, that's actually different than who we're proclaiming God to be. Therefore, it's not an inconsistency in the worldview of Christianity. It's an inconsistency of how we're perceiving it. Right, which is super essential. Like we can't, we can't make our own God. We have to allow the, God, the Bible to speak for itself. God reveals himself through the special revelation, the specific revelation of the Bible. And if, if we don't allow the Bible to tell us who God is, then we are going to come up with all kinds of false idols. I don't know which reformer it was. Maybe it was John Calvin. I can't remember. He said, we're perpetual idol factories, perpetual idol factories, always making false gods to worship. It is, yeah, it's, it's just part of being a human. And, and, and we just got to be aware of that. Anyway. <laughs> Is it consistent in itself? I would argue yes. Um, if you look at scripture and, and, and really evaluate it and become an honest skeptic, I think you will discover that it is consistent in and of itself. The second question is this, does it match factual reality? Does it match the world around us? Does a, do claims of the Bible, do, do claims of Christianity exist in the world around us? Huge question, massively important. And I would say there's several different avenues to answer it. Number one, we talked about humans being born sinful. Man, the baby's coming out as a wicked sinner from day one. I don't know about you. My wife's a nanny, and we've been around kids. Man, I don't think you have to teach those kids to disobey. 
you don't have to teach them what's wrong. You don't have to teach them to, to, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to beat up the other kids. They do it innately. They want to do those things. It's in their nature. We have to teach them to be quote unquote good. <laughs> we have to teach them. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. you love others. You treat them well with respect. You obey your parents. Why would we have to teach these things if it was innate within us and our human nature? So I think factual reality points to that, that we're actually sinful. We want to cause conflict. We have it within our own, as the Bible would say, evil desires to hurt others and to build ourselves up against others. Um, and then Christianity says, yeah, that has to be dealt with um, by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and now the indwelling spirit of God to bring his life in and through us to be changed and transformed. So, so that's one level. And then if we move on forward, there are other things like, let's talk about um, the main book of Christianity, the only, <laughs> the only one, the Bible. So does the Bible match factual reality or has it been changed over time as some would claim? Good. And and not only does the Bible match factual reality in the sense that is it itself trustworthy, but does the claims of the Bible exist in the world? So we'll evaluate both of yes. those questions. The, 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 first, the second one is actually a little shorter, so I'm going to just mention that really quick. Um, there's all kinds of archaeological evidence that supports the Bible. Uh, we know where Jericho is. We know where Bethlehem is. We know where Golgotha was, or we can take an educated guess. We, we, we know where the old, we, we, we have a wall of the temple uh, in the Old Testament, like the, the, the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. It's famous. People go and put prayers in, in this wall. Like it literally, uh, time after time after time after time after time, you can see archaeological support for things that are happening in the Bible, archaeological support for David, archaeological support for, I mean, you just like, it, it's not, it's not um, complete. Like th there are things that we don't have archaeological support for, but the, we have a huge amount of things that we do have archaeological Over, support for. Overwhelmingly. Overwhelming. Uh, I would say it's far and few between where we don't. And often I find it fascinating that there are times when, archaeologists or others will say see you guys don't have evidence for this and then some years later oh we discovered that city now why is that important well compare it to this is just an easy one off the top of my head mormonism how many how many locations historically and archaeologically have been discovered from the book of mormon zero not one that's pretty bad if it doesn't match. Like that's a factual reality issue. So, so we're seeing the archaeological side of the Bible. Yes, we're seeing history, proven fact. We're seeing the cities and the characters. They're, they're true. We've seen them in the world throughout history. Okay, that's important. Um, now, we want to share some of the claims of the Bible and match them against history. But before we do that, has, is the Bible we have today the Bible that was written then? Uh, is it accurate? Can we really trust it? Because otherwise we can't really evaluate its claims. Right. And ultimately, if you're evaluating the historicity of something, if you're evaluating, evaluating whether something is historical, there's two different criterion um, that, that we're going to focus on today. Criteria number one is that if there are uh, events outside of 
that event, if there are sources outside of the primary source, a supplementary sources that agree that this event took place, then it's probably an event that took place. Second criterion is that if it's the, the closer you are to the, the closer the, the writing of that document is to the original events, the more likely it is to be accurate. So here's what we know about scripture. There are more than 5,000 manuscripts supporting the New Testament, the, the Bible that we have, the New Testament. And, and we have the New Testament completed portion, like a complete manuscript of the New Testament from the early 300s. But we have documents from the New Testament, different portions of the New Testament dating as early back as the early 100s. That's within one generation of Jesus, which means that the people who are writing the story of Jesus, and it says this for itself in the Bible, are, are people who saw and witnessed the things firsthand. So it's not like they witnessed it and then there's a generation and a generation and a generation and a generation and the story gets mixed up and it's a big fish tail and blah, 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 blah. It's literally, Luke says, I, I interviewed the people who said this originally and then I wrote it down. And uh, Matthew was right there as it was happening. John, uh, if, you, if you take the, the um, traditional view that the, the gospel of John was written by John the disciple, he was right there watching it, uh, watching it unfold. Yeah. So it has these people who were literally alive at the time of Jesus writing these things down. And then these going forth within that generation, it didn't come generations after. Uh, now why would there are over 5,700 manuscripts? Why would that be important? Well, when we're looking at and, and critiquing historicity, we look at uh, other ancient Greek and Latin documents and we believe they're trustworthy. They are the original writings of those authors. And the most they have is fewer than 20 manuscripts. That's incredible that the New Testament would have well over a thousand times many manuscripts or copies of those as those other ones that we consider authentic. So if you're to doubt the authenticity of the New Testament, you have to doubt the authenticity of all other ancient historical documents that we believe are trustworthy. You can't, you can't pick and choose. You have to use the same, the same examination across the board. And so that, that is incredible that we have that, not to mention that there are 40-some different authors of the Bible, and man, it's all come together throughout uh, 1,400 or 1,500 different years of spanning the Bible. Uh, from when it was written, 40 different authors. That's incredible that it would all come together and point toward one climactic person and one climactic story. Think about that. 40 different authors over 1,500 different years, 1,500 years and different cultures and languages. That's incredible that it would even be a hint of consistency. Think about, let's say, World War II. Take five different authors, tell them to write on the topic and see what you come up with. I mean, it might be fairly consistent, but it might be wildly different in different directions. And so that's just a cool reality to consider as you're looking at, okay, is this possible? Does it match reality? Right. And w one thing that I just want to put a caveat in here is what we can be confident of is this, that the Bible we have today, which 
English Bibles are translated from original source documents. Those 5,000 manuscripts that we have from the first 300 years of Christianity, that's what, that's what the ESV, that's what the NIV uses to translate the, the English Bible that we have today. So it's not like the Bible was translated from Greek and Hebrew into Latin and then from Latin into the, you know, prehistoric language, English, and then from prehistoric English into modern English and blah, 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 blah. That, that would also cause a lot of issues, uh, translation issues, and we'd lose the meaning of things over time. But that's not what we're doing. What we have is literally the original source documents, and we're translating what the Bibles that we have today from those original source documents. So that's one thing to add. The, the caveat is this. We can be confident that what we have is what they had, but that's not a statement about what's true. So as you engage with your friends and neighbors, they might say, yeah, well, this manuscript evidence proves that the Bible, what the Bible says is, is what it said back then, but it doesn't prove that what it says is actually true. Yes. And in order to talk about that, you have to discuss different criteria. And actually we want to discuss one of those things right now. Um, I don't know, unless you had more to say about that, Charlie. No, I think that's perfect. Yeah. The, the reason we discuss just to emphasize what you're saying, the historicity of the Bible, that it's accurate from the time it was written to what we have now is so that people can't say, well, it was changed over time. Therefore, what you're arguing doesn't even matter. We have to say, first off, do we have what we have today is in fact what they had then. Therefore, we can't say, well, Jesus and Paul never claimed these things. No, we can say actually they did. Here's the historical fact. Now, then we have to get into what did they claim and does that match reality, which now we can actually do. Right. And here, here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you the ammunition to kill Christianity. Ready? Here it is. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are all idiots who are most of all to be pitied, and we are following a false god. That, if you comes, wanna, that comes from the Bible itself. Nathan paraphrased it. but Yeah. If you want to systematically deconstruct Christianity, prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That um, says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 and on. Basically, Christ has not been raised. Our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's useless. Paul said that. The Bible says that. So, so Paul just gave you a bullet to shoot Christianity and dismantle and destroy it, which makes sense. If Jesus didn't rise, he's still dead. Everything he claimed doesn't work because he said in three days I'll rise. So he would be a liar or a total lunatic if he didn't actually raise from the dead. So did he? Right. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And there's actually a surprising amount of all, we're going to call it evidence instead of proof. So uh, it's evidence. It, it's when you take these things together, you can come to the conclusion with, with relative ease that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. And uh, here are 13 criteria for Jesus rising from the dead. The first one is this that there are more than 29 extra biblical references outside the Bible that Jesus existed. So uh, that's more establishing that Jesus was a real person. Um, 29 extra biblical. That means they had no reason to talk about Jesus. Like these are non-Christian sources, uh, 29 extra biblical outside the Bible sources. Of those 29, there are two that are absolutely uncontestable. One is from a guy named Tacitus, and the other is one of Josephus's two references to Jesus, both calling him the Christ, the Messiah, who died. 
Um, super important, critical information there because part of proving the resurrection is you have to prove that Jesus actually died. Um, there's actually an entire religion out there that believes that Jesus didn't die uh, called Islam. And in Islam, they believe that uh, Jesus was re either replaced by a different person or uh, that he just somehow endured the cross. But what becomes really, really evident is that that's just not possible. Jesus was put to death. Yes. And, and I'll make a side point on that. There are verses in the Quran that actually say Jesus died or point to that reality. But most Muslim teachers will teach that he didn't die uh, until they come across those verses and really critically think about them. So that's just a minor side point. But from these historical documents, we can say, number one, Jesus lived. He was a historical figure. Number two, he was killed on a cross. And number three, he was buried. We right. know that historical fact. And, and, and it's, it, it's important to point out that Josephus and Tacitus were not believers. They were not Christians. Josephus was a Jew. He had no reason to say, yeah, Jesus, this guy really lived. In fact, he would have had every reason to write him out and say, I don't want to. But he was a historian, and therefore he said, hey, this is what's going on with this movement. There was this guy, Jesus. And so uh, there wasn't any ulterior motive for Josephus to write something up that wasn't historically accurate. Right. The second proof of the resurrection is still establishing that he died because that's, I mean, even outside of Islam, that's a common, a common thing that people argue. They'll just say, oh, you know, like he went into a coma and then he rose three days later because he was just waking up or whatever. But if you study crucifixion, it is like the Romans by the time, by the time of Jesus, they were experts at crucifixion. It, it's a some, somewhat of a common misconception that Jesus was the only one in history ever crucified. No, 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 no. Crucifixion was a common, common form of, of killing people in the Roman Empire. It was excruciating. It began, especially, and, and this is documented in the New Testament, it began with Jesus being whipped with a cat of nine tails. And essentially, th this device was designed to rip and tear skin and muscle away from the body. Sometimes people wouldn't even make it to the cross because they were, they were killed just by these la this, this whipping with, that was pulling off their skin and their muscles. Um, and then crucifixion was, uh, we, we have this picture in our head of crucifixion where it's like Jesus hanging on the cross and he's just still. He's just sitting there. But in reality, crucifixion was a very moving, like you had to move in order to breathe because of the position of your arms uh, uh, being out to your sides and in many cases above you because you were hanging down. In order to allow your diaphragm to function, you had to lift yourself up, breathe in and breathe out, and then go back down. And so it was easy, easy for people to tell when you had died because you just stopped moving. And in addition to this, in addition to this, Jesus also, uh, it, according to the Gospels, he was pierced in the side, um, which uh, with a spear, and it says that blood and water came out, and uh, that's probably an ancient way to describe um, this natural separation that occurs between, I think it's like blood platelets and this other thing called that starts with the letter S and I can't remember what it is right now. Sorry. But um, essentially this only occurs when you're dead. And uh, 
that that was also evidence that Jesus died. So we've got the insanity of crucifixion plus the fact that blood and water came out of Jesus' side, proving that he was absolutely for sure dead. The third thing is that Jesus was buried. This is a big deal because it, everybody knows uh, where famous people are buried. Um, and especially a person like Jesus, we would have, they would have made his to, they would have made his burial place into a tourist destination. Like, it, like people would know where he was buried. It, if he was still in the ground, we would know it. We would know where he was buried just from the traditions passed down from before us. Number four, Jesus's death made the disciples despair. This is super, super important because like the disciples legitimately, according to the New Testament narrative, they were feeling totally and completely hopeless, which is just more proof that he actually died and that this wasn't just some hoax that they were trying to pull off uh, to, to somehow make him the Messiah. Number five, Jesus's tomb was found empty. If, if, if he didn't rise, we wouldn't have Christianity. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, like how, like just because it was empty doesn't mean that Jesus rose from the dead. It could mean that people stole his body. But it is very essential for us to understand that the tomb was indeed empty. We have, uh, there are people who would have zero incentive to say that the tomb was empty, who are saying that the tomb is empty in the New Testament. People like uh, uh, the, the Roman person, uh, sorry, I can't remember his name, Charlie. Do you remember his name? I think it was uh, Pilate. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, Pontius Pilate. He's like, hey, um, the, 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 the tomb is empty. The Jewish leaders are saying the tomb is empty. So we can absolutely positively establish the tomb is empty. The tomb was and, empty. And so the, as we're going through these, you'll see that there are certain arguments against the resurrection that don't make historical sense. So we can't say that Jesus was not a historical figure. He never lived. The evidence points toward he was a real historical figure. He did live. Well, people say, well, he didn't really die like that. Actually, the evidence says he did die like that. Well, then, you know what? Uh, let's, let's go find his body in the tomb. We can't. His body has never been found. And why is that important? Well, uh, those people would have, if, the disciples after this, the story goes that they went and began to proclaim this risen Jesus. Now, people could have gone and said, hey, uh, you guys are wrong. His body is right here. It's, it's in the tomb. Here's, here's the dead body of Jesus. Nobody ever did that. Uh, right. And so that's why that's important. And that moves us to number six, which says the disciples had experiences that they were believed to be actual sightings of Jesus alive after his death. They believed to have seen a risen Jesus. They claimed to say, we saw the resurrected Jesus. Guys, he's alive. Before that, they were doubting. They were in despair. So how would that kind of transition happen unless they had actually seen the risen Jesus? Now, this negates the fact of, well, we'll get there. But, but that's a very important piece that the disciples claimed to have been seeing a risen Jesus. Right. And it's also essential for us to take into account that there are two who, primarily James, and Paul, who were not just doubters, but persecutors who 
witnessed the risen Jesus and went from persecuted persecutors to proclaimers. That is a phenomenal, phenomenal transition. And all of, we have historical record that all of the disciples were either tortured or killed for their faith in Jesus. How do you go from despairing to being willing to be tortured or killed for your faith? Uh, there, there's a common phrase out there when it comes to the proof of the resurrection that says, liars make bad martyrs. If they knew that they stole the body, if they knew that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead and they were despairing, why in the world would just a matter of years later, they be willing to lay down their lives for, lay down their lives for it? Like, for a that, lie. For a lie. For something that they knew was a lie, which is different than modern day martyrs uh, in, in like radical Islam or, 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 or whatever, uh, where they wouldn't know it's a lie. Uh, they're just, they're going off of a belief. But the disciples, they would have known it was a lie if, and, and then they were dying if for they had, the, the The best answer, let's just say, the best answer would have been that they stole the body. That's the only way his body would have been gone, that it was stolen yet then they would have known and they would have had to lie and liars make bad martyrs. You're not going to die for a lie that you made up. Torture proves that you'll say, you'll say whatever the torture person is telling you to say just to get out of torture. It, it works. It, it, people are under duress. They'll will say it to get out of being tortured to death. These disciples, all different places executed and martyred and tortured to death for the sake of proclaiming that Jesus was still alive. Now, this also points to another theory. Well, fine, we believe you guys. They all thought they saw a risen Jesus. They must have had hallucinations. They must have all had these wild hallucinations of a risen Jesus. That could not be possible. Uh, the defining factor of a hallucination is that is it is within a single person's mind. You can't share a hallucination with another person. Uh, not even the best drugs can give people the same hallucinations today. Therefore, they 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 couldn't have had hallucinations. Not eleven of them. Not twelve. Not thirteen. Not the crowd of five hundred that had claimed to seeing a risen Jesus. So. That is interesting that these guys would have suffered and willingly died and proclaimed a risen Jesus for something that they had claimed to see, which couldn't have been a lie and it, it couldn't have been a hallucination. Right. And we also have evidence that the resurrection, this is the next proof, number eight. The, the gospel was a central teaching in the early church. The resurrection was not developed over time. It was the first thing that they taught. This is essential uh, there's a lot of people out there who are like, well, you know, actually this whole idea of the resurrection, it didn't come around until like 300 years or 500 years after Jesus. It's not true. We have evidence supporting, manuscript evidence supporting that this, the resurrection was at the center of almost every important proclamation of the gospel that's recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection happened over and over and over again. Uh, sorry, like the statement that they, the, the teaching happens over and over and over again. Jesus didn't die and rise again over and over and over again. Yeah. So uh, um, we'll, we'll go fairly quickly through these last four and then summarize it for you to make it simple. Um, but this message was proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus died. Now that would be important because they could have said 
hey, let's go find the body in the tomb. Let's pull it out. They never found it. They could have, they, they knew these things that were going on. It, it didn't happen. They, instead, they decided to torture these guys to death. Right. And just one more thing to add to that. If you were fabricating a religion or fabricating a lie, you wouldn't go to the very place that people would know you were lying. You would go to some other country and proclaim your lie there and allow that lie to grow. The fact that they proclaimed it in Jerusalem is huge because of all the people in the ancient world who would have known whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, the people in Jerusalem would have been them like Pontius Pilate or the, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees could have marched Jesus' body through the streets of Jerusalem. Why would you proclaim the risen Jesus where that could happen if he hadn't actually risen from the dead? Yes, massively important. Um, because of this message, number 10, the church was born and grew. And number 11, Sunday became the primary day of worship for many. And we hinted, I'll just, I'll just finish these up and then we'll talk about them. Uh, Number 12, James, the half-brother of Jesus, went from a skeptic to a believer once he thought that he saw Jesus was alive after his death. And number 13, Saul, or otherwise known as Paul, converted after he believed that he saw and talked to the risen Jesus of Nazareth. So we have many, many people being transformed by the message of these original followers of Jesus and starting to meet together weekly on Sundays and proclaiming this message as well. And then we have James, who was in the family of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus, literally being transformed. He didn't think it was real until he saw what he claimed was the resurrected Jesus. Same thing with Paul. He claimed to have seen a resurrected Jesus and then everything changed. He was the one who thought these guys were idiots. He persecuted them. He put them in prison and all of a sudden he's willing to suffer unto death for the sake of this message. Uh, that's that's some convincing evidence, I would say, all pointing toward, in my opinion, I believe it's the most logical answer if we're thought, thinking logically, is we're evaluating, does this match reality? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I don't think that it makes sense that they would have, uh, obviously he lived, he died, and his body was empty from the tomb. It doesn't make sense that the disciples stole the body and made up a lie. It doesn't logically make sense. It doesn't make sense that they had hallucinations. I think the best possible answer that a, a, a historical scholar and skeptic, a, an honest skeptic would say, their best answer is that they had hallucinations. I think that's the best answer if you're not a believer. I think the most logical answer is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that he's still alive today, just as those followers proclaimed, and therefore everything he said makes all the difference. Right. And that's why the, the resurrection is the crux of the gospel. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then we can trust everything that he said. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then he was a fake false teacher. Yeah, it's, uh, there's this age-old saying, Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or he's really Lord. And that's within what we're talking about here. Um, if Jesus didn't rise, then he was a liar. Or he was a lunatic. He was just crazy in the head. But we believe he did rise. Now, I just want to give you guys, as, as you're maybe engaging people and defending the Christian worldview or discussing the Christian worldview with others, well, why would you follow Jesus? Why would you logically follow Jesus? Well, number one, uh, let's just summarize this for you. Historically speaking, Jesus lived and died, number one. Secondly, 
Because of that, his followers were in despair. And then thirdly, they became bold proclaimers of the resurrection three days later, and the tomb was empty. Those three or four things are the most crucial aspects of these arguments or these evidences. And therefore, you can say, historically speaking, the evidence points toward that, yeah, he, he was not a fake historical person. He was real. Yeah, he really died. Uh, history points toward that. And yeah, his tomb was empty. And yeah, his followers went and proclaimed, and they were willing to suffer and die for it. Therefore, it seems to make the most logical sense. Um, that's, that's a way that's helpful to really summarize some of those facts. Um, you can Google stuff. You can find the, the resources, the evidences. Um, you'll find them uh, like the, the Tacitus and the Josephus works. Um, there's a book that includes some of this evidence as well. Uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi has some of it. There's another book called The Resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is a very academic resource, um, and it's by Michael Lacona. Uh, that has some really helpful stuff, as well as anything by Lee Strobel, uh, The Case for Christ, all of that kind of stuff, The Case for the Resurrection. You'll find some of these evidences collected there. And then from there, and their bibliographies or whatever, you can go and read for yourself those original evidences and historical evidences. Um, so we believe it actually does match factual reality. And we'll send, we'll send you the 13 proofs of the resurrection if you email us at fuelfortheharvest at gmail.com. Yes, we will. So why the biblical Jesus rather than this worldview? We've been answering it all along, but uh, that's, a, that's a question we're going to be asking for every worldview. Why the biblical Jesus rather than this worldview? Well, obviously, we're discussing the biblical Jesus in the worldview of Christianity. So why him? Why would we follow this Jesus? One, I think it makes the most logical sense. I think his, histor, historically, everything points to his resurrection. And if what Jesus claimed was true, then I'm given every ounce of my life to what he said. There's nothing else I would rather do and invest in because it matters now and it matters for all of eternity. It, it gives me hope and joy and peace now, and it gives me eternal security in the life to come. There's nothing else I would do with my life if what Jesus said was true. Secondly, I have literally seen lives transformed worldwide. My life has been transformed. I've, I've talked with the risen Jesus. I've encountered the risen Jesus. He, he, he has changed my life radically. I've seen him do the miraculous. I've seen people healed. I've seen people set free of demonic oppression coming against their life. I've seen lives in an instant changed and claiming that their life was changed by a risen Jesus. I have seen this in countries all around the world. I've seen it in my life. I, that's why I would follow the biblical Jesus. Yep. Uh, ultimately, I think it comes down to it, this exact same list for me. Um, it's the resurrection, um, which means that even, even if there's th theology that I don't fully understand, even if there's teachings that are difficult, um, if Jesus rose from the dead, all, that, all of those questions will eventually be answered um, because he's the one true living God. And he, he says that we're going to be with him forever when we die. So like, uh, ultimately for me, it all comes down to the resurrection in a logical sense. And then in a personal sense, it all comes down to this personal testimony of me encountering the living Jesus. And I think per, like, obviously my experience doesn't mean anything to anybody other than me, but it is definitely compelling to me. Like I can't take my testimony to a, to an atheist and say, man, like 
isn't that compelling? <laughs> they probably like laugh at me or something. But, but, but sometimes it really is. I mean, yeah, one of the things we proclaim is our testimony. You see throughout the gospels, uh, Paul and the other followers proclaiming their testimony. Guys, I encountered the risen Jesus. It's real. And so, yeah, people may laugh. They may think you're an idiot, but there are others who are going to be drawn in and say, wait a second, if he is saying this about his life, they might start to wonder. Right. And, and, uh, what I more mean is that it's not proof. Like my testimony does not prove to a skeptic that, that Jesus is real or that he's alive. But what it does do is it proves it to me. Like, because I have made, because I've invested time and energy into, into building my relationship with Jesus, because I've sought him with my whole heart. I've like, my life is totally different than what it was, what it was going to be. And everything changed when I encountered the living Jesus. I, I, sorry, one little soapbox here. I think that one of the primary reasons that we see the church in America falling apart like it is, is because so few people have actually encountered the living Jesus. It's easy to ditch Christianity. It's just a series of rules and regulations and religion. But if you meet the living Jesus, bet. Like, you're not going to just ditch the living Jesus after you meet him. The transformation, the joy, the peace, the hope. Oh, like, I, I couldn't possibly deny it. I could not possibly deny it. Absolutely. So that's, that's what we believe about the Christian worldview, why we would follow this guy named Jesus as the Bible portrays him. Uh, we're going to follow this same format going forward to discuss other worldviews, such as Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Mormonism, and some other main worldviews in the world. And uh, yeah, we're excited to share these with you guys going forward. Thanks again for joining this episode of Fuel for the Harvest. God bless you guys.